Christianity is a radically going faith, a radically outward-focused religion. And with that in mind, let us read Matthew 28. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray real quick before we continue. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you have your way this morning with our hearts and with our minds. I pray that you, ha- pray that you have your way with me. Lord, I pray that any distractions that I might be harboring might be done away with. I pray, Lord, that your word would shine forth and that I would be minimized in the process. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. We all come with baggage loads of sin. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd forgive us, purify us, restore us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and prepare us, Lord, to think more about this amazing word, this amazing commission that you have given to all your people, to all your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Harbin's Community Baptist Church should be a church on mission to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, among all the peoples of the world. That should be our mission. Let me say it again. Harbin's Community Baptist Church should be on mission to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ among all the peoples of the world. Your notes there, if we had slides, which we don't, your notes there have three M's. Those are the three M's. The church's mission, our mission is to make, mature, and mobilize disciples through the gospel. Make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. Now, a lot of what I'm going to be preaching this morning is probably stuff some of you guys have heard a thousand times before. But we can't hear it enough. And so you probably have heard that this word, make disciples, literally means to make students of. To make a disciple means that someone becomes a student of Jesus. It was oftentimes used in the Greek language to refer to someone enrolling in a school or enrolling under the tutelage of a rabbi or a master or a teacher. And so what we seek, what we desire, the task of the church is to get new people enrolled in the school of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to make disciples. To get people enrolled in the school of Jesus Christ. We are to be making disciples. The world is beckoning men and and women and all of us to become followers of a thousand different things. To become students of a thousand different things other than Jesus Christ. To become a student of, of economics, to become a student of politics, to become a student of, of, of some hobby, to become a student of high theology, whatever it is, 
to become a student of a thousand different things outside of a student of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of, of course, we got some college kids here, but long ago when I was in college, I remember those, uh, well, before I went to college, in high school, those college fairs. Do you remember when all the colleges would come in your gymnasium and they would set up their booths and you'd walk around to the fair? I don't know if they still do that or not, but they did when I was in in, in school, even though my high school was in Ecuador, they, they would send representatives from colleges all across the United States down to our high school in Ecuador. And they would, in our gymnasium, they'd all set up booths and you'd go around and they were all wanting you to become their student. Okay, they were all giving you their pamphlets and their information, okay? And the smart colleges had pictures of pretty young ladies up there as well, right? Okay, and they were all beckoning you, come, come be a student here. Let us show you the pamphlets. They always, the, the people on the, on, the, on the brochures were always attractive at these different colleges, men and women. Okay? They knew what they were doing. They knew marketing, and they were trying to get you to come. And, and that's the world. We live in this vanity fair. We live in this great fair of the world calling us. Come, be a student here. Be a student here. Be a student here. And it looks so attractive. And our job as the church is to penetrate a dark world where... Everybody is being beckoned to be a student of something else and say, no, let us share with you good news. Let us share with you good news of Jesus Christ. Become a student of his. Become a student of that good news. We are after Christ followers. And our task isn't to just make them and enroll them as students of Jesus Christ. Not to just make disciples, but to make disciples and connect them to the community of faith. Connect them to the church. It says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is so important because it is a mark. It is a sign of being grafted into the new covenant people of God. It is by its very action an appeal to God for a clean conscience, a profession of faith, and identifying with Christ who took God's punishment upon himself and thus died and we died with him and was buried and we were buried with him and was raised and we were raised with him to walk in newness of life, life abundant, life free, life unhindered, life with joy and love, life everlasting, life as a part of a new people, a called out community, a holy nation of priests, the church, the bride of Christ. It's unfortunate in our very individualistic world we live in, I'm talking about America, because the rest of the world isn't quite as individualistic as America outside of Western Europe. But the rest of the world is it's much more communal than we are. And so part of our challenge is to understand this call of what baptism represents. We're not called to individually just make a decision and individually just be baptized. Like this is some sort of thing you just do. So you get a baptism certificate and you're on now on the roll. This that's happening back here when you're baptized is you are being brought into a body. You're being put into a people. You're being baptized into a community of faith. Making disciples is this beautiful picture of the people of God being built together, being brought together by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's this beautiful picture of the body maturing until the day when every tribe and every language and every tongue and every nation is represented at the throne. That's what's happening as we are making disciples and baptizing them. We are bringing them into a community. It's not just about 
You get saved, you get baptized, and go on with your life. You're becoming part of a people. You're connected in a very real way. How many of you guys have seen the Allstate commercial where this hippie-looking guy runs into the back of this pretty uh, business-looking guy, and he gets out and says, oh, you know, don't worry, I've got Allstate. And he shows him his card, and, and the other guy says, well, I've got Allstate too. And they realize they have the same Allstate representative, and the hippie guy says, man, it's like we're connected. And the other guy says, no, we're not. You know, yeah, we are, man, we're connected. Okay? Uh, I know that's silly, but that's what we are. We, we are connected. But we live in this individualism where we say, no, we're not. No, we're not. So when, when someone is suffering over there, we may, we may pray for them. We may say we want to help them. But in reality, we don't want to get our hands too messy in their affairs because we are so individualistic. But the body of Christ is this, this corporate group of people being grafted together. And, and when pain happens to one part of the body, it happens to the whole body. We all should feel it. And that's the picture here. And not only local expressions of the body, but we're baptizing the whole, the universal church of God. And as I heard just heartbreaking stories this week of persecution. I mean, guys, we can't even really... Some of the the stories of persecution can't be shared. Because if the details get out... It actually puts the people that they're connected with even in more danger. And to, just to hear some of the stuff that's going on in the world, really just, you almost can't feel guilty for being able to sit here in these nice chairs in this temperature-controlled room. It's just absolutely stunning. Some of the stuff that's going on in the world. The news has been ripe with the story of this guy in um, Iran who's about to be put to death because he's a pastor in Iran. But that's just in the news because the media has picked up on it. The stats I was given this week was that monthly at least 100 Christians are killed systematically in Iran right now, every week. That's this congregation gone in a week. It's happening all across the globe. And we don't feel that pain. I don't. Maybe you do. I don't. I read about it, but I don't feel it. It doesn't stir my heart up to a sense of urgency. To get the gospel into those dark lands. Like it should. We're baptized into a body. And there are parts of the body that are being terribly persecuted right now. And it is our job to pray for those persecuted believers. And it is our job to do all that we can to see that the darkness that they live in is penetrated with the light of the gospel. A church is not a church if disciples are not being made and being brought into the fellowship of believers, period. A church is not a church if disciples are not being made and being brought into the fellowship of believers. Everything we do is empty if people are, are not becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. It is the mission of the church. 
unless we limit this mission to evangelism, which is necessary and essential to making disciples, we are taken by Christ's words here into a deeper meaning of our task, which is the maturation, the growth of those students of Christ. We are to see them mature. It says here, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Just as Paul did in Ephesus, we are to teach the whole counsel of God. All that he has commanded us. This demands that we see in all of the scriptures, Jesus. Luke's commission narrative in Luke chapter 24 verse 44 is helpful for us here. It says this in Luke 24. Jesus speaking. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here's the commission. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We need to ask God, if we're going to be on mission for Christ, we need to ask God to open our minds to understand the Scriptures more fully. To see His mission from the very first page of Genesis to the very last page of Revelation. We need to ask God to whet our appetite to desire the Scriptures more. The mission of the church is to get all of this Bible, all of this Scripture, into each and every one of us, all believers. This is why the Bible is so central to church life and why when it becomes less central, we're in danger of getting off mission. This is the only way to get us to be like Christ. It's the only way to get us to be like Christ. There aren't aren't a whole lot of exercise programs. There's only one for the believer to mature and to become like Christ. Now, if you go on your television, you can click through your, your cable TV And there are whole channels dedicated to different types of nutrition systems and diet systems to get you to be physically healthy and to grow physically. You can find a thousand of them. And each one of them says they're the latest and the greatest. And if anyone comes to you and says they have the latest and the greatest way for you to become a better Christian and it is not centrally tied to this, well then it's just a gimmick. Change the channel. We have one exercise program. We have one means by which Christians become mature believers. By which followers of Christ go from just enrolling in the school to becoming like the master. And it's this. This is the bridge between enrollment and becoming like the teacher. It's the word of God. This is our only prescription. Jesus said if you love him you'll keep his commandments. And his commandments become a delight to us. We don't like the word commandment. His commandments become a delight to us if we are growing in him and not a burden. And we will want to keep them. It will be a sign of our maturation. And thus, this making and maturing of disciples is not something that's static. It's something that's in motion. It's also part of the task to be mobilizing disciples. We make mature and mobilize disciples. It says, go therefore, go therefore, and make disciples. You've probably heard it said that this word go, this verb here, it actually means as you are going. It can be easily translated that way. There is not an end. You don't go for a little while and then stop. It's as you're going. It's a continual action in the Greek. 
So we are to always be on mission as we go, while we go, everywhere we go. We are to be making and maturing disciples. This is a call for all believers, not just pastors or deacons or leaders or evangelists or teachers. This is the commission for you as well as me. Make, mature, and mobilize disciples. That's our task, and it's a heavy task. This is a heavy task. Notice the four alls in the commission. The word all is used four times in this great commission here. I want to look at two of them, and then we'll look at two of them later on in the sermon as we conclude. Okay? Two of the alls leave us with this weight. The feeling of the heaviness of this burden. Take the gospel to all nations. That is a heavy burden on the church. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the other heavy burden. Okay, we've already mentioned it, the, the need to teach all of Scripture, but that's hard. I mean, how many of you guys have ever been on a, on a Bible reading plan? Where you read through the whole Bible. Okay, there's lots of different ones out there. There's chronological ones. There's different reading plans. And if you're doing a, a kind of a chronological one, and if you're honest, it gets really tough. When you get to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you're just sitting there going, whoa, okay. And you're trying to prop those eyes open early in the morning as you're reading these. Because our flesh doesn't like to see Jesus in all of the scriptures. Our flesh wants us to dismiss part of this book as irrelevant and no longer needed. And so as we're struggling through those and we're tempted, I just want to get to Judges because that's much more exciting. Just get me there. I tell you what, I'll come back later, maybe during when I'm on vacation and read those other ones. Don't give up. Keep reading and keep asking the Holy Spirit to do exactly what Jesus did with his disciples after he rose. And that is to show you himself, show you Jesus in all of the passages of Scripture. And that's a difficult task, though, for the church to get up and do that. It takes a long time to preach through all the Scriptures. It takes a lot of dedication to preach through all of the Scriptures and to read through all of the Scriptures. Now, let's go back now to this phrase, though, all nations. And this is where I want to hang out for a little while because this was the focus of the conference that I was at this week. All nations. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Okay. This phrase here, nations, is probably a bit misleading for us today. The actual phrase in the Greek is panta ethne. Ethne would be where we get our word for ethnic groups or ethnics, ethnic people, ethnicities. Okay? So the word nations is a little bit deceiving to us. It leaves us a little bit confused as to exactly what Christ is calling us here. Partially because of the way we use the word nations today. Today we use the word nation to refer to a geopolitical state. Like the United States. Or Poland. Or whatever. In, uh, Great Britain. Whatever we want to use as an example. But we think of a, of a geopolitical border-bound entity. But when this word was first translated into the English... For the, for the earliest English Bibles, including the King James Bible in 1611. Okay, this word nation didn't mean that. Remember, they're coming out of the Dark Ages. They're, they're coming out of the feudal states. There weren't this, this modern nation-state concept that we have today. Really, it referred more to tribes back then. 
There was a feudal lord who had a certain possession of a certain area of land, and there were people that were serving under him, and, and it was a tribe. It was, it, was, it, was, it was divided very much by ethnicities. But they used the word nations. Really, to help us kind of wrap our mind around it, think about the Indian nations. Okay, the, the, the Indians that lived in a, in a geographical area now called North America when, when, when the settlers first came over, there were various nations, but they didn't have strict boundaries and borders, and they had a certain relationship between the different tribes, and they were all different nations. And, and that was more the picture of what, what Paul was trying to, what, what Jesus was trying to say here when he uses this word ethne, and I believe it was the intent of the King James translators when they gave us the word nations, but today the word nation has a little bit more of a of a different meaning. And so we need to get, understand here that really what's, what's aimed at here is linguistic ethnic groups. Groups defined by their tribe, by their common tongue, and by a common culture. So as there are a couple of hundred nations, geopolitical states in our world, matter of fact, way back in the or mid-1900s, there were many who were celebrating that we had almost completed the Great Commission because we had the gospel in almost all the nation's geopolitical entities. Matter of fact, today we can say that the gospel is in some sort of way in every nation geopolitical state. But that wasn't the meaning of the word. There may be 200 or so nations. I don't know the exact amount. You want to know how many people groups there are, ethnic groups there are in the world? Take a stab at it. Anybody? This is interactive today. How much? 10,000. Anybody else? Not hundreds. The tens closer. Okay. The estimate varies depending on which group you're working with. Southern Baptists have determined that there's basically about 12,000 people groups in the, on the globe. 12,000 people groups. You know how many of those have been reached with the gospel? I mean, you're a people group too. About 5,000 of them. The Great Commission is far from being done. We still have a lot of work to do. This is your call. It is my call to reach the ethnos, the ethnes, these people groups. Now, very interestingly enough, as we've gone through Acts, we've seen that the early church struggled with making that happen, didn't they? What had to happen to the early church before they really began to boom and explode into the nations as God had, Jesus had originally commissioned them to do in Acts 1-8? What did it take? It took persecution. It took persecution for them to begin to move out into the nations. Very interesting thing about this word, ethnos. It's also the word used in the Greek... To refer to Gentiles. I find it very ironic that the very first church struggled to get past the Jews. They were struggling to get that gospel into the Gentile nations. Yet it's the exact word that Jesus used when he said, Take the gospel, take this truth about me to the nations. He wanted them to look beyond the Jewish boundaries. He wanted them to see that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. And that the gospel was now to go unhindered to all people groups. This is our 
call. We are called to take the gospel to all people groups as we go. This is a daunting task. But glory be to God and his sovereignty that he is making it easier for us. And let me tell you how. Atlanta is one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the nation and increasingly so. If you haven't noticed. Houston and Atlanta are the two cities in the south that are exploding with ethnic groups moving in. God is making our task easier. He is bringing the ethnos to us. He is bringing the nations here. Gwinnett County grew from 66% from 19, grew 66% in 1990 to 2000 and 40% from the year 2000 to 2010. Now, a political scientist and sociologist will tell you that if a city or a municipality or a county or whatever grows at a rate higher than 20%, it can't handle the growth. The infrastructure can't handle it. The political structures can't handle it. And our county grew in one decade by 66% and another decade by 40%. And to add to that difficulty of our municipalities being able to handle that growth is the fact that the majority of that percentage of growth is ethnic. Our people groups moving into our county. Large populations of Asian groups, Middle Eastern groups, Latin American groups are already here. The unreached have been brought to our doorsteps. There are now at least 100 unreached, unreached people groups in the United States of America. You would think that's impossible. Because they've at least got to hear the gospel in some sort of way, right? They've got to at least be some sort of engagement with that, some sort of touch. I mean, they turn on the radio, maybe they'll stumble across a Christian radio station, right? But there is an estimate that there are at least 100 unreached people groups in America. And many of those are in Atlanta. The unreached have been brought to our doorsteps. The nations are here. The question is, what are we called to do? I've already had it on my heart for a while. And whether or not God opens the door for this, I don't know. It's been on my heart for a while, and had our building not been uh, open about a year after our construction company had originally told us it would be open, we'd already have it happening here. But my goal has been to have an ethnic congregation meeting here, whether it be on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening or Saturday evening or whatever. That we have some sort of use of this building that has been given to us. I mean, this has been gifted to us. I could care less what happens to the building as ethnic people come in and use our facility or whatever. This is not ours in the first place. We've been blessed beyond belief. And to just use it for us is very foolish. So I've already had it on my heart that we need to be doing more to try to reach our county's different ethnic groups by the use of our building. By the using traditional means, and what I mean by traditional means is that if a, if a church decides they're going to need land and a building and a staff in order to, to reach people, that's traditional way of planting churches. Using traditional means alone in order to reach the, un, the unchurched in our area 
And this would be, this would be that if, if each church reached 100 people, we would need 6,421 new churches planted at a cost of $12 billion. That's what we'd need to reach the peoples of our community. 6,421 churches at $12 billion. We're not the government. We don't have access to $12 billion. We can't plant 6,421 churches. And that's just considering that no more growth happens. 38% of the population in the metro Atlanta area are illiterate. 29% are functionally illiterate. A great percentage of those who graduate from our schools, including Gwinnett County Schools, are still functionally illiterate. Many of the ethnic groups that have come here have come from an oral background, not a literate one. Add on top of that an overall increasing societal dependence upon visual communication up and against, over and against literary forms of communication. These realities have to be taken into account when we consider the methods that we use to reach the people groups. How do we do this? And so what the International Mission Board is encouraging churches to do, churches like ours, is to begin to use the methods that the International Mission Board has been using for 30 years out on the mission field in other countries. And that is to start church planting movements. To try to penetrate these ethnic groups with their own language and plant churches. Small churches that are trained to duplicate. To start a church planting movement. The opportunity for the church in America is unprecedented. Bring up that graph back there since um, that I asked you um, to be, have ready for me. Okay, this is a slide of immigration numbers and percent of population in the United States. You guys, if you know your history, the early 1900s was a great time of immigration in the United States, right? Many of your ancestors came to this country in the early 1900s or late 1800s probably. Okay, in the early 1800s, this is when immigration sort of peaked in these early 1900s. And we think about that mass of people. You've seen the, the old pictures and the movies of, of the people at Ellis Island. Just the, the, the throngs of, of immigrants coming into our nation there at the Statue of Liberty. Okay, at its peak, okay, in 1930, after that wave of immigration, immigrants made up 14.2% of the overall population of our nation. Okay, that was the percent that they made up, the overall percentage of of people in our nation, which, I mean, so I'm sorry, let me, I got that back. It's 14.7% is the percentage. Down here is the million. There was 14.2 million immigrants in our nation, okay, which made up 14.7% of the total population of our country. In the 1920s, legislation was passed to curb immigration, and you can go back and read about that. It's not one of the better times in our nation's history. Because we didn't just stop immigration outright. We limited immigration. And set quotas. 
And in the 1920s, believe it or not, we were infected in this country with a lot of what was going on in Nazi Germany with eugenics. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up later. It plays a key role in abortion in our nation. And we didn't want our population being infected by what we considered to be inferior races. And strong quotas were put on those who could enter the country. And no quotas were put on Northern Europeans. We want the Northern Europeans here. We don't want the Italians, the Jews, and the Eastern Europeans. And the quotas were put on. It was a shameful time in our nation's history in 1929 when that passed. There's been reforms since then. But you see that the population of the immigrants in our nation has gone down, reaching its lowest point in 1960 at 9.7%, at which point, just a few couple years later, it was only 4.7% of the population. And look what happened in the 80s until today. The immigration that is now happening in our nation far outweighs anything that happened in the early 1900s. We now have 35% of this nation are immigrants. 35% of this nation are immigrants. I'm sorry, 12% of the nation is immigrants. 35 million people in the country are immigrants. That's the increase. Okay? That percentage, we haven't quite reached that peak because the population was smaller back then. We haven't quite reached that peak, but this is 2005. That's seven years ago. I guarantee you we're there now. Now, how do those stats make you feel? Honestly. Does this get you excited? Hmm. I don't think it does. I think most red-blooded American church members do not like this at all. Do we see this massive movement of immigration as a tremendous gospel opportunity to reach the nations? Or do we see it as an infringement upon our nation? How dare all these immigrants come? By the way, these are legal numbers. So I guarantee you, if you add the illegal component to the picture, then the percentage goes way up. How do you feel about these things? When you think of immigration reform, do you think of curbing that like in the 1929? Let's stop this. We're losing our language. By the way, did you know this? English is not the official language of our nation. Our nation has no official language. English is the language that was chosen by the first Congress to do all of our documents in. It is the language that we, they chose to do all of our governing in, in our signs. But it has never been said that it is the official language of our nation. You know, by, that only passed by one vote in our first congressional uh, our first Congress, that, that, that English was going to be the language we printed all of our money in and we put all our signs in and all that, it only won by one vote. Had whoever that was that made, made that one vote not been there that day and been sick, German would be our official language. It came in second by one vote. French came in third by just a few. 
how different this world would be, this nation would be if we were all speaking German this morning. I'm afraid that our political alliances and frankly our bias and our, well, our arrogance has kept us from seeing that God has put at our doorstep an opportunity for the Great Commission to be fulfilled. And it's happening right here. I've been driving around this community now. I wish I lived here. If anybody wants to trade houses with me, talk to me after the service. This community, Harbin's, has changed a lot in five years. There's a lot of diversity moving in. And we can either fight it or we can say, praise God that he is sending the nations to us. Because a little church like Harbin's, it's hard for us to get out there and minister the way we want to to the nations, much less our own community. We can praise God for what he's doing. On the scary and sad side of things, Islam is on the rise in our nation in amazing and alarming fashion. It is. Honor killings are on the rise, many of which you are not even aware of. Did you know our Southern Baptist International Mission Board has had to move four pastors in the United States from their home to protect them from radical Islamists in their own community? They've had to move them to a new city. We're not talking about the Middle East. We're talking about America where pastors have been moved from, I'm just going to say, Detroit to Washington to protect them from being killed because they're ministering to Muslims. That's no longer an overseas thing. That's here. Today. And we can either ignore the good that comes with immigration and the bad that comes with immigration and just say, listen, we are very comfortable just doing things the way we've always done it. Or we can say, God has put the nations here and has put the darkest of darkness here so that it can be penetrated with the gospel. So what are we called to do? God is calling us to embrace, engage, and evangelize the people groups in our nation. I don't know the answer yet as to how it affects us. I'm praying through that. There are many ways that we can be involved. And we are involved to a certain degree. We've got, we've got back there on that board pictures of four orphans that we can't even figure out how to support yet here out of this congregation. But we want to do it. And sometimes I get frustrated. God, how do we do this? How do we minister to these Liberians? And the Holy Spirit's always going before us, isn't he? Wouldn't you know it, right down here on Ace McMillan Road, you know the old White House? Some of you guys know our old White House where we had some stuff stored that belonged to the association. It's now been sold, the old White House, to a new congregation. I didn't know who, I just knew it was sold to a congregation. And I've been praying, God, how can we do a better job of connecting with this, these kids in Liberia? You know what congregation is going in over here? A Liberian congregation. How about that? A mile down the road, we have some Liberians that are moving into our community as we're trying to minister to Liberians across the globe. God's putting the partnerships in place if we'll just open our eyes. I don't know what this looks like for a church our size, but I do know this, that God took a church of 30 people 
and put them on task with this vision about 10 years ago. And that church in Texas is still running about 20 to 30 to 50 people on a Sunday. But because they decided to be intentional and strategic about in, in embracing the ethnic groups coming into their area and equipping strategic people to go and get into those ethnic groups and start churches, that, that little church of 30 people has planted 120 churches. Some of those churches right there around them in the ethnic groups, some of them have great-granddaughter churches of people who have left and gone back to their home country and planted new churches. We're always worried as Southern Baptists, how do I send money to missionaries? How can we get over there? God has brought the ethnic groups here, and some of them can't stay here. And if we can evangelize them, they will go back and start new churches. What an amazing opportunity that God has laid at our feet. But it all seems so overwhelming sometimes. I don't quite know exactly what God's calling us to do. Ask, I ask you to pray for me. But I do know this. There's two other alls in this passage. Here's the first all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. The ground of our going, our outward focus ministry, is built on the authority of our sender. This is no less another place in Scripture where the divinity of Christ shines through. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He, the one who has all authority, is sending us. That's where my hope is. That's why I think a church of 70 can impact the nations in an amazing way. Starting with impacting our own community in an amazing way. And then we read at the end of the passage, And behold, I am with you always. There's the next all. I'm with you at all times, if you want to translate it directly. I am with you at all times to the very end of the age. The mission is attainable because he is with us. He has sent us and he is with us. We are united with Christ. Now, I'm not sure the apostles could have gotten this. I mean, walk with me for a little bit. Humor me for a little while here longer. So here's these, these apostles, disciples. At least 120 of them who were at the day of Pentecost, but we know that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he rose. But on Good Friday, the whole world had been ripped apart and turned upside down. Jesus had been preaching that the kingdom was coming. The kingdom was here. And they were expecting a political kingdom. And yet, Jesus dies. Saturday, he's still dead. And then on Sunday, here they are huddled up in that room, scared to death. And a knock comes on the door. And it's not the authorities coming to drag them away and do what they did to Jesus, as they were probably fearing. But it was the women. Isn't it amazing that Jesus appeared to women first? I think it's because us men were too skeptical of things. I don't know. But it says a lot about the value of women in Scripture. That Jesus appeared to these women. They come back and they bring the message the, the disciples don't believe it. Peter and John actually run to the tomb, but they're still baffled. I think John, I think the text hints that John begins to get it before Peter does. Because it says he begins to remember the things that Jesus said about rising again. And they get back to the upper room there. They're trying to figure this out. Jesus appears to them. And they're still thinking, aha, yes! Now that Jesus is here, right, 
this kingdom is going to come. But Jesus appears on and off to them. He appears and disappears. He's here and then he's gone. He has a physical body because he eats. But then he's, it's this glorified body because he can do things that we can't do with our physical limitations. He's here and he's gone and he's teaching them the scriptures. He's teaching them that he is in all of that Old Testament. And then he gathers them together on the top of a hill. And he tells them, go. Make students of me in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. When he said those words, I bet you anything, the disciples said, finally. All right, you're going to stick with us now, Jesus? This appearing and disappearing thing's freaking us out a little bit. You're going to be with us. And shortly after that, he ascends to the Father. Now, I don't know how shortly Matthew 28 and the ascension happened, but we have in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a similar commission where Jesus tells them to go into Judea, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know it. But Jesus ascends. And if you read Acts chapter 1, you see that they're still staring into the sky after he ascends. And I can only imagine what they're thinking. What now? Are you kidding me? They're blown away by this ascension. Surely they're dumbfounded. They immediately go back to the upper room. Now they begin to pray because they don't know what else to do. What can you do? And they begin to put their structure back in place. They, they get another apostle, Matthias, to replace Judas. And they hadn't heard yet, I don't think, or they hadn't fully understood yet, that Jesus has said that he was going to clothe them from on high with power. And in Luke chapter 24, after he told them, commissioned them to go into Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, he says this, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay until the city, until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They didn't get it until Pentecost. They're there in this room and they're praying and they're probably overwhelmed by this task as I am overwhelmed when I see that Jesus says, go into all nations. Reach every single, all 12,000 of them need to hear the gospel and it's not just anybody's job. It is your job, Steve Doyle. It is your job, Steve Walsman. It is your job, Harbin's Community Baptist Church. It is your job, Hebron Baptist Church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, every Baptist church, every Presbyterian church. It is your job. Go do this. And if you look at it, we're going, how on earth can we do this? We don't have the $12 billion. We don't have enough seminary students. We don't, how, how do we do this? Because we're thinking with our structures and we, we don't know what to do. And I guarantee you that's how the, the apostles felt as they're sitting there, all 100, the, the 12 apostles and the rest of the 120 up there in that upper room. And they're praying, and they're praying, and they're praying. And then the sound of a mighty rushing wind came into the room. And tongues of fire began to appear. What is a rushing wind? A rushing wind is something moving 
unstoppable. A flaming fire is something moving and active, unstoppable. And all of a sudden, that movement of the Spirit of God began to indwell these believers. And no longer was fear an issue. They burst out of that open room and they began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. And the Holy Spirit was at work because as they spoke... Different tongues began to speak, and the ethnos that were there began to hear the gospel in their language, and they said, what is this? They couldn't believe it. Jesus was making it happen. The Holy Spirit was making it happen because all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him, and he was with them in the form of the Holy Spirit. They were united with Christ, sealed by the Spirit of God. He was never going to leave them ever again. And my friends, as we're overwhelmed with the task of the Great Commission, let us say we need the Spirit of God to move in a mighty rushing wind sort of way through harvest before we can do anything. We need... A mighty rush of the Spirit in our hearts and in our body. And just see what God's going to do. These 120 scared to death people in the upper room, according to the book of Acts, have already turned the world upside down. And here we are in Acts 29, continuing the task, carrying it on until that great commission has been fulfilled. And God has laid at our doorstep an opportunity. A grand opportunity to reach the nations. I don't know what it looks like yet for Harbin, so don't ask me for specifics. Because I think the apostles had an idea of what they were going to do. I mean, I'm not sure if they should have replaced Judas or not. Because eventually God calls Paul to be an apostle. So there's a debate whether they should have replaced Judas. But I think what they were thinking was structure. We've got to have the pieces in place. We've got to replace him. Scripture even said that they needed to replace him, so they replaced him. They couldn't do the task just by organizing better. And neither can we. We accomplish the task when we are brought low and humbled and the Spirit of God has his way with us. That's how we accomplish the task. That's how we do what God has called us to do. The mission of the church isn't static. It's moving. There's this interesting drumbeat in the book of Acts. At the beginning of the book, it talks about how God added to their numbers daily. And then later in the book, it talks about how the believers were multiplying. These are two different Greek words. And they mean just the same thing they mean in the English. God wants us to go from adding disciples to the point where we're so relying on His Spirit that we're seeing multiplication happening. You guys are all missionaries. You have unreached people groups in your workplaces. Well, they may be Anglo, may look just like you, but they may have never heard the gospel and they're totally unreached. We have unreached people in this community. We don't have to go far to complete, to work on the Great Commission. The Spirit of God must be moving in us with love. I guarantee you those apostles came out of that room. They weren't angry at the Jews anymore. They loved these people who had crucified their Lord. 
They were moved with love. They were moved with joy. They were moved with peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is what flows out of a believer that is controlled by the Spirit of God. This is a mission of love carried out with joy that we persevere upon because of the Spirit's patience in us. That we carry out with kindness that is marked by goodness to all men. And that through our ups and downs is a demonstration of faithfulness in which we treat all men, enemies included, with gentleness. And which is marked continually by a growth in Christ and self-controlled holiness. This mission is so amazing. So what's the goal? It's to make disciples. Make, mature, and mobilize disciples to reach all people. That's the mission. That's what we're to be about. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we close. And we will close with a song, so I want our music guys just to be ready to go. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's just pray. Because I don't know what this looks like yet. All I know is that God has stirred up in my own heart a renewed desire to see the nations reached. And how on earth he's going to use little old Harbins. I don't know. But let's pray. Because we can't structure it or organize it apart from the Spirit of God making it happen. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We praise you that you are the one who is sovereign over this whole process. You have called us to join in and to be a part of what you're doing. Acts 1-8, Lord, begins with this call to take the gospel to, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then it ends with the Apostle Paul saying that he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles and they will listen. Oh God, if we'll just take the gospel. You have your people. You know who are going to listen. You know who are not. And it's our task to take it to all of them. Oh God, we ask your forgiveness for our judgmentalism and our anger and our our frustration when we drive down the road and we see signs and every single one of them is in Korean and we can't understand a word. And it makes us mad. What fools we are. God, forgive us of our sin instead of driving down that road and saying, oh, Lord, help us to find some some Korean missionaries to penetrate this darkness. When we look at the statistics of our schools and there's all these ethnic groups in there and we get frustrated because we want our kids to be with the better group. Forgive us of our sin. We don't see the Great Commission. We see our private institutions being impinged upon. We see our liberties, at least what we think are our liberties, being affected in a way that we don't like. Forgive our sinfulness and our hardness of heart. Help us to see the nations. Help us to have a heart for the nations. We can't love them. There's not a single person in this room, Lord, who can love them apart from your Spirit of God moving in our heart to have love for them. So Spirit, come. Move like a mighty rushing wind on Harbin's Move however you want. 
Come. Come with tongues of fire. Come with mighty wind. Come. Make us a people in motion. Make us an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. Be glorified in us, Lord. And turn our hearts toward you. We ask now as we sing this song, and Lord, may it be from our heart. May we sing with voices that are not designed to impress others with our vocal ability. But may we sing loud and to you because you are worthy. You are worthy. You're worthy of the one in here that's singing off-key and the one who's singing beautiful melodies. You're worthy. And so we sing and we respond. And we do all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we respond to the Lord now with song. We respond in various ways. However the Spirit's moving upon you, you respond. If you come up here and bring your prayer request, that's a response. If you come up here and bring your offering and your tithe, that's a response. If you need to get on your knees and repent before the Lord right where you're at, that's a response. If you need to come talk to me about what it means to be a part of this kingdom of God, that's a response. This is your time to respond. Everybody in here should be responding. So let us sing now and respond to the Lord appropriately.